the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of series 2 of the Forward Together podcast. I am Jared Dean. I work for Hollywood Trust and today I am joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? It's as great as ever, Jared. Good stuff, good stuff. Okay, Paul, this time in our penultimate episode of this series, you had a conversation with Seamus McGuinness. That's right. Uh, And very lucky we were to have him because he is research professor at the Economic and Social Research Institute, which is the main Irish economic policy analysis body. Mm. Uh, He is also lead author of uh, an important piece of work, uh, The Political Economy of the Northern Ireland Border Poll, in which he looks at the economic challenges facing Northern Ireland and what would need to be done in order to, to achieve Irish unity. Yeah. The first thing that he does is point out some stark differences between the economies north and south of the border. Absolutely. And in a sense, you could come down to two words, really, which is infrastructure and productivity. I mean, that covers a number of other things like uh, human capital and skills and so on. But basically, where the South has benefited substantially from foreign direct investment, and that's improved internal productivity within the Irish economy, and they've invested heavily in skills, we haven't really done those things in the North. Mm, Yeah. What he is saying really clearly is... There's things that we could do on an all-island basis, if you take away the constitutional question, that would better people on this island. That's right. I mean, you know, um, we've got 1.8 million people in Northern Ireland, um, and there's a, a much larger jurisdiction to our south. I mean, if we had uh, more integration of the markets, if we had more cross-border planning uh, around infrastructure and other things, then actually we would have two economies that work much better and work more efficiently, uh, achieved economies of scale. And, and health is obviously one of those factors that you know, Seamus mentions, the fact that we could just be achieving better services at lower cost if we worked more on a cooperative basis, on a pragmatic basis, north and south. Yeah, OK. Well, let's hear the full conversation with them now. To go into it then, Seamus, um, I'm talking with you now as research professor of the Economic and Social Research Institute in Ireland um, and lead author of the political economy of a Northern Ireland border poll. Um, and uh, both of us have written a lot about Irish unity, so it's a particular pleasure to be able to talk with you today. Um, how, do, how do you uh, see the differences, the com- comparison between the two economies, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? I mean, the, the, that's, that's a text, really a question that is at the centre of, of the whole um, debate around constitutional change. Uh, and really, um, I come at it from the perspective of someone who worked as an economist in Belfast uh, for the first um, 10 or 12 years of, of my career and, and now have spent around the same amount of uh, time looking at uh, issues relevant to the uh, Irish economy and, and the, the economy of, of the Republic of Ireland. Um, and there are a number of differences, but I, I suspect the, 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 the differences, the, the central differences between the both economies, North and South, is really relates um, to um, differences in, in the level of productivity and the, the extent to which they exhibit dynamic growth and are able to respond to shocks. Uh, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, in the past, 
the, the explanation for the north, uh, which was much more dependent on public sector employment. But I think uh, with austerity and those differences in the sectoral composition uh, of employment north and south have more or less uh, begun to disappear, and we point that out in our paper. But there are these fundamental underlying differences um, that drive lower productivity in the north, and we, we pointed to some of those uh, in our study. Um, the, the, the first relates to um, human capital areas, and so we see that levels of educational uh, attainment in the north are really um, lagging uh, other British regions and uh, the Republic of Ireland. And I have to say, this was something that actually was a shock uh, to me as someone who works in the Republic and is domiciled in the north when I looked at the data. Um, so, for instance, compared to Great Britain in 2015, uh, Northern Ireland had the highest share uh, of people with the lowest level of, of educational attainment and the lowest share of graduates. And the gap between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic was even more pronounced in 2015. So, in that year, over 35% of young people uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, aged 24 to 30, were educated to two lowest levels. Uh, of, of educational attainment that's primary or, or lower secondary level, not compared to just 11% in the Republic. At the other end of the spectrum, we see that uh, just under 40% of young people in the North were educated to the two highest levels of attainment compared to or over 60% in the Republic. So that's a key aspect. There's also differences in terms of the structure of the Irish economy and, and the, the economy of Northern Ireland, for example, in terms of exports and the uh, value of exports to the Northern Ireland economy is around 15%. It rises to 35% if we conclude external sales to GB. It's 54% in the Republic. There's also differences in the uh, productivity levels of, of, of what is being produced. So um, the export sector in the Republic is much more highly value added relative to uh, the North. And then another key difference between both uh, economies is the role of foreign direct investment. The Republic is much more FDI intensive and also the level of productivity associated with the FDI that goes into the Republic uh, is much higher than in the North. And again, that's been a key driver along with export orientation uh, of the, the high growth rates that has been seen in the Republic. So those are three fundamental differences that we've uh, pointed out from, a, from an economic perspective that has to explain why uh, income levels and productivity levels in the North have been um, diverging and falling behind those of the Republic over, over the last, uh, particularly since, since 2000. These, these are really important points, aren't they, Seamus? And I think perhaps it's just worth emphasising what you've just said there, in the sense that the South has been much more successful in generating foreign direct investment, and that in turn has assisted the rise of productivity in the South. Secondly, you've got a big difference in terms of educational skill uh, outcomes. And uh, although the perception amongst many people is that Northern Ireland has an excellent education system, the, actually it doesn't compare very well with that of the Republic. And in particular, we've got large numbers of people who are being failed by the system who leave school without basic skills. And then the third point, which actually is something that I hadn't really recognised until I read your paper, is just how different in terms of sectoral um, pro prominence the, the, the different uh, gen uh, jurisdictions have because Northern Ireland has a very small uh, private services sector um, and it is very dependent both on agriculture and low-value manufacturing as well as public services and I don't think those factors are widely recognised. No, and, and that is in contrast 
contrast uh, to the south, where the, the, the biggest element of uh, the exports uh, is pharma and pharmaceuticals and um, high-value-added services, particularly around uh, technology. So, and a lot of that stems really from the success of the idea, and that has to be recognised in, in bringing these, these uh, large multinationals into Ireland, uh, and also uh, the, the policies that have facilitated Indigenous companies to grow up uh, around them. And, and again, uh, you know, when I looked at the data, this is something that, that sort of baffled me, you know, because we should have seen a, a piece dividend of some description. Mm. I, I understand that um, really when you look at how um, devolved uh, government works in Northern Ireland, that uh, particularly that they, they, they're essentially administrated, uh, administering a, a block grant that comes from, from the UK uh, government. And that has been that grant and that, that fiscal sort of space has been heavily constrained since 2010 um, with the event of, of austerity policies. And there was very little room fiscally for any of the government devolved government departments to do very much that would change the underlying um, productivity path of the North's economy. But I do sort of wonder why um, foreign direct investment uh, has not uh, been a bigger feature and, and why um, the bodies such as Invest NI have not been more successful uh, over the period in bringing um, large multinationals uh, into the North in the same way that the, I, that the idea uh, has been in the South. I understand that obviously uh, up until the late 90s that uh, the political uh, disruption and, and the um, ongoing uh, troubles, if you want to term, use that term, was a big barrier to uh, foreign direct investment. But, but certainly after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, and the, the goodwill that there was uh, to the North internationally, I, I, you know, I would have expected to see um, a better uh, performance in terms of inward uh, investment to the North um, than we had seen. I mean, when I've read papers on this, the success of the IDA has been put down to, in a sense, three factors, one of which is education and skills, the next is the lower tax rate, and, and the third is the attraction, which also applies to the UK, of an English-speaking region that was in the European Union. So those three factors came together. I mean, I've read work by Graham Brownlow, um, or heard him speak about uh, this from Queen's, and one of the points he's made is that the IDA has very much focused on productivity, where Invest in I hasn't focused so much on productivity or focusing perhaps on potential growth industries. Yeah, and that's, that's, um, that, that is one potential explanation. I remember when I worked in the North and uh, the bodies were slightly different back then, the, the count was always on the number of jobs created mm. uh, in terms of how the agencies were performing rather than how productive uh, that the, the jobs actually were. I mean, you know, I, I, I suppose we're going to talk a little bit about constitutional issues mm. at some point, but I mean, you know, just thinking uh, strategically, even ignoring the constitutional issue, and this is um, stuff that you, uh, points that you have raised in your own um, writing to Paul in your own research, is that there are clear, there are clear opportunities uh, for cross-border cooperation in a number of areas that, that are, are just so obviously mutually beneficial that should be pursued. The obvious case is health service. You know, another is around infrastructural planning. But enterprise development uh, is another area that surely we, we should be um, looking at taking a, a more all-Ireland approach to. Um, and, and in that sort of scenario, you can only imagine that uh, the North would be a net beneficiary in terms of um, taking that joint approach with, with uh, investing in I and ID in terms of 
going after high value added. Um, for direct investment, you know, to, to one extent, the decide can actually um, absorb any more of that uh, mm. uh, type of investment is, is, is up for question. But there Especially is, with Dublin overheating so much prior to well, the... Well, yes. Yeah, and, and there, are, there are infrastructural and space constraints around Dublin. So, you know, the case can easily be made for that. that okay, there are, there are issues around uh, human capital and skills development in the north. Um, and there are issues around some aspects of infrastructure, particularly around the rail and road network and broadband. But, you know, uh, it, it is still highly educated uh, and relatively low cost uh, English uh, speaking economy um, that should be attracting more uh, FDI and high value added FDI than it is. Obviously, the, the Brexit has, will have changed that a little bit and, and undoubtedly will have uh, reduced the attractiveness of the North as a source of FDI. But nevertheless, I think that that is one, that the area of enterprise policy is one obvious area where we, we, we would benefit uh, from greater North-South uh, cooperation and a joint approach. Now, that brings us on to a very important uh, area of discussion. I mean, your own research where you're talking uh, the political economy of the Northern Ireland border poll was inspired by the impact of Brexit and comparing the situation in Northern Ireland where the conversation is very theoretical without the, the work that was done, for example, with the Scottish independence referendum planning. And, and that seems to have inspired you to, to, to write your report, which is extremely valuable. Well, I mean, without a doubt, um, in the absence of Brexit, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that to the extent, and, and people, I know that you've been writing about this uh, for a long time, uh, but Brexit, the issue of Brexit, has put the question of the constitutional future of the North more centre stage. Even without Brexit, we know that there are con continued demographic changes that are taking place uh, that are likely to make a border poll um, arise at some point in the future. But the political and economic disruption that's associated with Brexit um, may well lead to this uh, occurring sooner rather than later. And, and really that was a motivating uh, factor in our research because when we looked at the Brexit debate, uh, that, and, and really the fact that it took place in a an evidence vacuum where people were just free to say whatever they wanted, make the claims, what that, any claims that, that they, they chose to, and were not being fact-checked. Uh, that that the referendum took place in a context where no one had really accumulated the evidence uh, prior to the referendum taking place so that people could make informed decisions with something we wanted to avoid at all costs. Because we, we were all bearing the cost of that uh, to some extent. And then when we looked at the example uh, of the Scottish government uh, and the, the level of detail uh, that was produced in terms of the Scotland's future document that was published in 2013 uh, across a, a whole range of economic and constitutional um, dimensions in terms of what the implications of Scottish independence uh, would be. It seemed to us that we needed to start making the move uh, and, and to develop the evidence base and sort of mapping out some of the main issues so that when a referendum uh, takes place, I think it is inevitable at some stage. Um, the, the problem is we don't know exactly how that's going to come about, whether it will be as a result of a British uh, Secretary of State making the call or somebody actually forcing it through a legal challenge. Um, so given the fact that there, there, there is that uncertainty about how it can occur, uh, we need to be prepared for the eventuality of it taking place and we need to make solid steps in terms of building the evidence base so that when the time comes, 
can make informed decisions, and politicians in particular will not be free uh, to make whatever claims they want. Um, Blanche, I mean, there will be an evidence base there, and, the, and, the, and there will be the capacity for claims to be fact checked. And what do you see as the, the economic impact potentially of unity? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, uh, and, and we, I don't have the answer to that because we don't know what form uh, unity, uh, unification uh, will take or, or the process of the transition um, to it. Um, what we can say in terms of our paper is that uh, when we looked at the performance of the North economy, uh, both during the Troubles and post ceasefire, it is a very uh, poor performing economy in terms of productivity. It, it, it remains one of the lowest uh, UK growing regions, being at the bottom of the, of the growth and per capita GDP pile. Uh, in our paper, we look at 2014, 2014 as another paper with uh, more but we looked at it from 1970 to 1995. It was exactly the same period. Uh, there's exactly the same story. So there's no evidence that uh, the, the North economy is, is likely, that, that transition path, or that, sorry, that, that growth path, is likely to change uh, going forward. Um, and now there's, there's been a, a, a substantial gap opening up with the South. And there's all this difficulty around GDP figures and preparing the But when we look at just simple things like the level of disposable household incomes, so this is the level of income that households have left uh, per annum after taxation and everything else, uh, and accounting for differences in, in prices across the two jurisdictions. Households in the South are currently just under 3,000 euros better off, they have more disposable income relative to households in the North. We also see that households in the North have a higher, substantially higher risk of, of poverty um, compared to those in um, the Republic. So the proportion of, of, of individuals in households at poverty risk in the North, in the last figures that we had, was 14.3% of the population compared to 9% of the population in the North. So, and it looks as if those growth paths are going to continue and there will likely be increased divergence between the North and the South. The question is whether or not the North can benefit economically from a new political and constitutional arrangement. And again, this really goes back to the question, well, can these new constitutional, um, political and economic arrangements address the fundamental failures of the North economy in terms of low productivity, in terms of improving um, the, the, the human capital accumulation, education and skills, uh, foreign direct investment and generating uh, more value-added uh, activity within the, the economy itself. So that's the question of... Whether or not we succeed or whether or not unification succeeds in achieving that really is down to whether or not the process can actually tackle the low productivity problems of the North economy. And the point that you, your work has made, um, and which actually is the same that I've been stressing, is the fact that you don't have to assume that there's a big bang trend. Uh, a change that actually you can have a transition and you've talked about the fact that there was a 13-year transition in that handover of Hong Kong back to local control um, and I've written about a 10-year transition so the, the question then is what you do in that process of transition and whether you actually have the the political space to transform the the education system the skills base the productivity the infrastructure in order to make the north a, a more successful economy Yes, exactly. And I mean, you know, when you read some of the, I suppose, what, what we've seen in the, in the media, some of the articles around unification and some of the assumed costs 
you see that the debate always focuses on the subvention trigger, ignoring the fact that subvention is just a a, a product of low productivity. And these um, and a lot of these articles seem to suggest we're going to have a referendum on a Friday and you know constitutional change will take place on a Monday, which is absolutely crazy and it just doesn't tie in with how we we uh, see these processes taking place historically. Um, you know, I, I did give the example of the handover of of, uh, of Hong Kong uh, took around took place around 13 years after the signing of the original treaty. Even when you look at the original Brexit negotiations, there was a, an, an agreement. There was a transition period of, of two years that was envisaged there, which everyone knew uh, was going to be way too short. So, constitutional change on the island of Ireland really should, uh, and, and it is most likely to involve a a, a transition period. Uh, and the success of the, the whole process really depends on what happens during that transition period. Um, so, and that, the, the questions that, that, we, that are raised there is what, what is the, the length and, and nature of the transition period? How long should it last? What will the relative roles of both governments be during that transition period in addressing low productivity levels? through reforms in educational, industrial and regional policy. How successful will these reforms be? And then there are other questions around the role of the EU and the USA in potentially reintegrating a, a post-Brexit uh, Northern Ireland into the EU and also assisting in the FDI process. And then there are questions around, well, negotiations between the Irish and British government around aspects such as debt uh, and, and pensions will also um, it has implications for the cost of unification or the, the value of unification going forward. So these are all these are the main factors that we've that identified that will determine that the successful or outcome of a unification process or not. And really, to get answers around all of those, parts, we need to be formally uh, modelling that. Uh, so we need to be saying, well, here's the North's economy, and this is the, and, and we, we link that to the South's economy. We're going to assume a transition period of five years. We're going to assume that we can make these these improvements in educational skills provision, in terms of in industrial policy and foreign direct investment. What are the implications of that over that five-year period or that 10-year period for the North's productivity? Um, what does that do to the subvention figure? Does it, you know, uh, does drive it to zero? Does it become a positive benefit for the Republic of Ireland? And then what? Do we layer on top of that what happens by accident through the rules of external bodies such as the US and the EU? And only really through that very detailed scenario modelling can we, uh, number one, identify the factors that are going to be important for any uh, transition to unity uh, and also really come to some consensus as to how long a, um, a transition period should, should, um, should last and what role the relevant authorities and government uh, should have during that uh, transition process. It's useful just to tease out a bit of one of those elements, Seamus, which is this question of the subvention. And just to spell out, because it's an unusual word, it means the subsidy that Northern Ireland receives from the UK taxpayer base. Um, and the figure that's usually used is nine to ten billion pounds a year of subsidy. Now, the point that both you and I have written about is that the subvention includes a number of factors that wouldn't actually pass over 
to an Irish government. And one of those is debt interests, another is the contribution to the armed services. On a smaller level, it's things like the, the royal family. But equally, there's, there's other elements that would be up for discussion about, for example, pension contributions, both towards people who were employees of the UK state and also individuals that were pensioners, uh, retirement pensioners who are paid at present by the UK state. And a lot of these things are unclear. Therefore, we don't know what the subvention would be. It could be somewhere around 5 billion or it could be much closer to the 9 to 10 billion figure. But we just don't know that. And that wouldn't be resolved without negotiation, of course. Exactly. Exactly, Paul. I mean, you've, you've just highlighted all of the main issues around this. I mean, the first thing to understand is that subvention is an estimate. Um, and and it's, there, it is not an actual check that is handed over uh, by the, the British authorities to the to the Stormont government. It is an estimate, and there are estimates within that estimate. Um, and there is a piece of work really to be done going forward to really have a detailed look at, at actually um, what is estimated within the subvention figure and what are the um, what are the margins of error around these different components that are actually estimated. But just taking the headline figure, you're right. Uh, so in 2017 to 2018, the, um, the subvention, which is the gap between the government spending allocated to the North and the amount raised in taxes or the estimated amount of raised in taxes by the North residents and businesses was around nine billion. Um, so when we extract these these non identifiable expenditures related to UK defence debt services, majority services, it falls by around twenty five percent. the the other issue is around pensions and pensions amounts to around spending on old age pensions, for example. Uh, in our recent date, most recent figures, 2016 to 2017, was 3.2 billion. Um, so, if we take that 10 billion as our as our current subvention estimate in terms of euros, what we basically say is that depending on negotiations, um, the uh, that will fall by between 14% and 61%. So, and the biggest aspect of negotiations will be around debt and debt interest, but also particularly around pensions. Uh, it has been argued to me, well, there is no pension pot. But as far as I can see that the, the pension system in the UK is based around national insurance contributions where people have, uh, where a defined uh, liability is being built up. So there's a very clear argument that those liabilities would, would not transfer across uh, to a, uh, the Irish government post-unification. But these things all have to be negotiated. On the issue of debt, um, it's often forgot that, yes, the, the North does have a share of the UK's debt, but it also has a share of the UK's assets. And those assets are immovable assets. Uh, so these are land and properties and, uh, and palaces and, and the movable assets, which can be largely financial. Um, so one scenario is that, that, and one likely scenario, I think, going forward is that um, they, they would, the argument would be, well, the North... Um, um, gives up its, its claim to UK immovable assets in the um, in return for debt forgiveness. So I think, you know, the, 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 the debt uh, issue is likely to go away. I also think that there is a clear pensions liability um, argument that the, the pension bill will not transfer across to the Irish government. So in that scenario, you know, you're looking at a subvention estimate that would range between 4.9 and 8.6 billion. 
my gut feeling is is that based on negotiations, it's likely to be uh, towards the lower end of that. It's still a large amount of amount of money, five billion a year. But then you have to put this in context. So between 2017 and 2018, the Irish government's expenditure rose from uh, 77.4 billion to 82. billion, which was an increase of 4.6 billion in just one year, and that was at the lower end of of that subvention range. So. And again, all of this ignores the fact that if we have a successful trans- transition period, convention may not be a requirement at all if we get productivity gains. But the point that I'm making is that, yes, it is a huge amount of money, but in context, and you look at it within the context of government spending, if subvention is at the lower end of um, the estimate, it's not, a, it, it's not going to break the state. And you would hope that you are going to drive productivity by having a more educated, more skilled workforce in Northern Ireland with a more effective infrastructure and also that you'd achieve economies of scale in terms of the operation of public services north and south, not least in terms of healthcare. Absolutely. Uh, and so this is another thing that, would, that needs to be looked at as a priority is actually the, the cost and benefits of, of an all-Ireland um, healthcare model. And again, this is, was... Um, in terms of the research that we undertake, this was what some of uh, some of the findings were, were a surprise to me. Again, as someone domiciled in the north, because you know we've heard consistently that uh, the main benefits, two of the main benefits of um, the status quo, if you like, are the high quality educational um, system and, and, and levels of provision in the north, and also having access to um, the national health service. You know, we've just spoken about the fact that actually the educational uh, attainment levels in the North are actually very poor relative to both Great Britain and particularly to the Republic of Ireland. And then when we looked at the data um, for um, the health systems, we also um, found that the gaps really, while they may have been there in the past, certainly prior to 2010 and austerity, um, they're not so obvious anymore. So we look at, when we looked at OECD data um, in terms of 2017 per capita spending, this is adjusted for purchasing power parity was €3,900 uh, per head in, in Ireland, in the Republic, compared to €3,045 in the UK. We, didn't, we, we couldn't get a, a, a figure for, for the North. Um, it is true there, there are differences that do exist that, that, that are obvious. The, the Irish system does have more upfront charges than the, the NHS uh, in terms of having to pay for GPs, prescription charges, but it also contains balances uh, to ensure that healthcare remains free at the point of use for the most vulnerable in society and the most recent data that we uh, had showed that around 43% of the Irish population had access to either medical cards or GP cards. Um, there are other differences uh, in terms of, um, say for example, uh, healthcare coverage is more superior in the UK, so the hospitals are treated a wider range of, of, um, of, of issues. Uh, whereas in the Republic, uh, has higher rates of doctors, nurses, hospital beds, and, and discharges per 10,000 population. But crucially, um, we found that both healthcare systems actually are poor performers in terms of having an acute occupancy bed rate of over 90%. And, and this is pointed out any occupancy bed occupancy rate, acute occupancy rate of over 90% is very dangerous because it means that the system. Uh, really can't respond to fluctuations in demand, rather that be um, the winter flu or, or what we're experiencing um, at the moment. And it also points to poor social care where there are difficulties in both systems in terms of transitioning people from hospitals to uh, back into the community. 
Another thing that became apparent is that when we talk of the MHS, there is actually four MHSs. Uh, and the data that we can access seems to suggest that the NHS in uh, Northern Ireland is, is a poor performer within that, um, that context. Uh, so if we looked at, for example, September 2018, there were 95,000 people in Northern Ireland waiting for uh, longer than a year for a, their first consultant-led outpatient appointment. That compared to 3,500 in England, despite the fact that England had 30 times the population uh, of Northern Ireland. There's also issues in terms of access to services. Yes, it is the case that people in the Republic do have to pay, are more likely to have to pay for access to a GP. Uh, but access to GP services in the South is quite easily. I know this myself. I had to get a form filled in. I was able to access a GP uh, appointment the next day. The data that we have from the Nuffield Trust for England shows uh, that 25% uh, of people waiting for a GP service in England is um, have to wait for over a week. And we suspect, given the differences in, in the NHS service that we see, that those waiting times are likely to be longer again uh, for Northern Ireland. So certainly what we can say is that the NHS cannot be held up anymore uh, as this, uh, this, this, this huge gain to the people of the North relative to the South. We've seen that the, the, there has been convergence in terms of the healthcare system, uh, both um, in, the, in the North and in the South, due to austerity in the North dragging down the quality of healthcare and higher spending in the north bringing it up. Both healthcare systems have um, certainly got their problems and I've pointed to the acute bed occupancy rate. Um, there are clear uh, benefits certainly for uh, having a more all-around approach to healthcare. Uh, but again, these, this is one of the aspects of the debate that I think people certainly weren't aware of previously but are becoming more aware of going forward. And I think the, the, the work that Pivotal, the new think tank, has done in Northern Ireland in illustrating, the, the as you say, the numbers, the length of the waiting lists and waiting times in Northern Ireland yeah. shows that it's a national health service in Northern Ireland that currently is not really working. And you, we can see that that, in a sense, is the result, perhaps, of the political stasis in Northern Ireland in recent years, where you've not had political leaders that are in post and able and willing to carry out the major reforms of the National Health Service in Northern Ireland that's needed. Yeah. And I think there's another issue here, Paul, that we're sort of touching on there. Uh, you know, you have been writing about these issues uh, for the last number of, 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 for a good number of years. Uh, we're seeing bodies such as Pivotal now coming into the fore. Um, but really, uh, you know, there isn't the evidence uh, that has been uh, produced on, on a regular basis. There isn't the research capacity there in the North really to, to point out where the, where the weaknesses are in terms of policy provision, mm. to advise policy uh, and, 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 and really to make the changes and the recommendations that policy can, can, can move more positively going forward uh, towards addressing many of the issues that we've talked about uh, today. And I think it is worth contrasting um, the position again North and South in terms of the mechanisms uh, that, that exist in the South for evidence-based policy compared to the North. You know, I'm a, a research professor in the ESRI. We, we have over 120 staff. We employ individuals uh, and, and, and professionals, most post-PhD, uh, to the um, 
in the areas of macroeconomics, behavioural economics, social inclusion, environment, regulation, competition, uh, labour economics. So we have, and, and all of those people and all of those units are constantly producing research relevant to the Irish economy and Irish society, constantly scrutinising the activities of government and advising government departments on, on, on policy using international best practice uh, and from a research perspective. There is none of that in, in the North. I mean, from what I can see, there isn't even a macroeconomic model uh, that we can uh, that is bespoke to the Northern Ireland economy um, that, that we could even look at the issues such as Brexit and the different scenarios of, of Brexit. Or, or we, I, and there still has been no uh, estimates, for example, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So you'd wonder, and, and I, I sort of think, well, you know, if you had the proper mechanisms there and you had the, the proper uh, research and information capacity in the North, would things like RHI have actually happened. You know, would uh, the the issues that are that are that are not being addressed around productivity that we've been raising, um, would there not have been earlier action on all of those issues? So I think this is another uh, you know major difference between the, the both systems in that the political class in the north just does not have the information uh, and the data uh, and the analysis that it needs to make properly informed policy decisions. Uh, relative to what we see in the South. And I think we all suffer for that. A final question, Seamus. I mean, we are currently in the midst of the crisis around COVID-19. How does this change things? And in particular, how does it change the ability of the Republic to engage in this process and also to have the financial capacity to support a transition? Well, I think, uh, you know, for the next 10 to 12 weeks at least, everything else from a policy perspective uh, is off the table. Um, and the extent to which the, the southern system will be able to re-engage with, um, with questions such as the constitutional question and other policy areas really depends on what happens. So the ESRI has uh, undertaken some scenario analysis uh, led by my colleague, uh, Kieran McQuinn, and it's based around a, a 12-week restriction period. Um, so the analysis predicts that the GDP in the, in the Republic will contract uh, by around 7% in 2020. And that's, if you take that in the context of, from a growth figure of 5.5% in, in 2019, we expect unemployment will also rise from 4.8% uh, in February to 18% at the end of quarter two, falling back to 11% at the end of this year. But basically our analysis does assume that domestic activity will return to a level of normality in quarter three and quarter four. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's hard to know, to know uh, where we're going to go uh, growth-wise, but I think it's 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 sort of worth um, making the point that, the, okay, the North and the South uh, are undoubtedly going to go uh, into recession, but this is a very different sort of policy uh, environment. Uh, the impact should be relatively short-run, hopefully, if, if, they, if, if they are maintained in this three-month period. Um, the Unemployment is likely to rise relatively quickly again when we see if, if, as long as businesses open up um, in the way that we expect them to do after the lockdown. Other recessions also tended to be associated with uh, high levels of credit constraints, uh, particularly around mortgage lending. It's not necessarily, there's no reason to believe that that's, that's the case here and, our, and, and that unemployment would be relatively sustained. So really it, it, it all depends upon how quickly um, we can we can return to, to, to normality if the if the if the lockdown extends more than twelve 
to extend, obviously the implications are, are going to be more serious. So, so we, I suppose the bottom line, Paul, is we, we don't know us because we, we have to see how the pandemic behaves and we don't, we have no way of predicting that. All that we can do is say, well, on the basis of a 12-week uh, restriction period, this is what we would expect to happen. But, and there would be a, a very severe uh, contraction in quarter uh, two, but we would expect to see quarter three and quarter four recovering again. Uh, and then we have to work out exactly whether or not we return to positive growth in 2021. 20, uh, Seamus, thank you very much indeed. Okay, Seamus McGuinness there from ASRA having a chat with Paul. Paul, stark figure that Seamus mentioned highlighting the difference between the economies north and south is that households in the south are significantly better off than those in the north. Yeah, um, of course, one has to be careful about some of these figures because people will point out that the cost of living in Northern Ireland is uh, much lower than that in Dublin in particular, for example. Mm. Um, And... I think the other point to say is that um, in both jurisdictions, there are challenges in terms of the, uh, the, the, the low income areas within the economy. You know, we, we have too much of a class divide, both north and south. But in particular, I think we've got problems in the north. We've got particular problems with the number of children that leave school uh, without adequate uh, educational qualifications, without the skills to get them into good jobs. And those are things that we, we just need to address properly. Yeah. The report that Seamus had, had written up on, if you like, merging the economies or looking at them together, it, it went into a bit of detail around transition. If this is to happen, and if demographics are pointing one way or whatever happens, this isn't going to be a big bang. It's not going to be voted for on a Friday and implemented on a Monday. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, sort of one of the light bulb moments for me in the last couple of years was when I read his uh, comparison with the situation in Hong Kong, hmm. where it was a 13-year transition from Britain giving up uh, its ownership of the lease of Hong Kong and transferring the administration over to China. And I think that's quite a reasonable comparison. You know, we don't need to think about the German example where the, the whole Soviet Union and its... Um, Uh, related states uh, collapsed but actually you can have a managed process as happened with Hong Kong though of course you know recent events in Hong Kong shows that having a longer transition doesn't solve all the problems you still have uh, underlying tensions when you've Mm. got a change in jurisdictional constitutional character in a place yeah it's almost inevitable when you think of it Okay, look, a really interesting conversation as always, Paul. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks to Seamus for taking the time to meet with you. And to Emer Doherty for production support. Thanks too to your funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland through their media grant scheme. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast where you can and tell your friends all about it. And we'll talk to you soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.